Go ahead and pick your speed up. You're number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm one of your hosts, Hal Bryan. I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications. And over there at one of the other microphones, it is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the Museum Programs Representative. And uh, and Chris, we are... Uh, we are just gobsmackingly lucky and privileged uh, to have a guest in person uh, with us today. Uh, so someone who has done some flying uh, that uh, that to me makes him one of the one of the giants upon whose shoulders we stand. Uh, so why don't you tell us who's here with us? Absolutely. Uh, we are very lucky to have retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Charlie Hooker here with us. Uh, who Charlie, you flew in the Strategic Air Command, flew a variety of aircraft. Um, Thank you so much for being here with us. Hey, it's my pleasure, Chris. Well, I want to say the first question we usually kick off with, and it's one that we love to ask simply because everybody has a slightly different or sometimes vastly different uh, answer, is what first got you interested in aviation? I guess at a pretty young age, my dad uh, got me a ride in an Aronka with a friend. And uh, I, I think I was hooked from that time on. I, I later, during high school, knew some guys that owned some uh, crop dusters, and they had bought out an air show back when air shows were restricted uh, after some accidents. And uh, I got to fly in a, in a couple of Stearmans, and uh, it was a total thrill, and I was hooked. Oh. What, what was your first, uh, you know, like aircraft lessons in? Like, what did you learn to fly in? Well, actually, it was in the Air Force, and uh, I started out in the uh, Beach uh, T-34 Mentor in primary flying training. Wow. So so from the, the T-34, what was uh, the progression at, at that point? Would you have gone uh, T-28 after that? Would you go straight into a multi-engine exactly. airplane? Exactly. No, we, we would, in uh, the second, uh, really the larger phase of uh, primary flying, we went into the T-28A. Okay. Yeah. And then... And basic proceeded to the T-33. Gotcha. So the T-33. And then you, uh, if I remember uh, the bio correctly, you started uh, uh, your sort of your active duty flying career in the F-86. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I went to uh, through basic and then went into gunnery school. And uh, our class and classes before us uh, all had orders to go to Nellis for F-100s. I was totally thrilled about that, except. SAC stepped in and took uh, an inordinate number of uh, classes of pilots into the Strategic Air Command at that point. So we detoured slightly and uh, started flying B-47s. Wow. So uh, I, I know from, uh, again, from the bio, you know, you flew the, uh, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you have B-47, then the, the B-58, uh, F-111, and, and B-1, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, to me, those are all... In in varying ways, there's there's sort of fighter style bombers, you know they're they're bombers. But can you tell us a little bit of uh, what it was like before we get to the the hustler? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about flying the the B forty seven? It's got a little bit of that fighter look to it. It's got sort of a fighter canopy and cockpit uh, and things. But uh, how was it to fly? Well, the B forty seven was a good airplane, and, and it was a wonderful airplane for its time, and it, uh, it served its purpose uh, for, with nuclear deterrence and, and, and uh, the protection of this country. But uh, the B-47 was a bomber and a big six-engine airplane, and uh, 
we loaded it down with a lot of fuel and spent a lot of time in the air with it. Uh, it wasn't the best flying airplane that I've ever heard of the most, or been with or the most thrilling, but um, I enjoyed every minute of it. The airplane was so beautiful, they made it, made it a hood ornament. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you know, even as you're sitting there telling me the story, I'm thinking of the Jimmy Stewart scene in Strategic Air Command oh, where he yeah. first gets to see the V-47, you know. Uh, um, was that kind of daunting when you first found out you were going to fly this massive airplane and, you'd, you know, you were really training for fighters? What was that transition like? It was a big transition. My heart was really with the single-engine fighters. I really liked all aspects of fighter flying and uh, and I was okay at it uh, I was pretty good and uh, to be thrown into a b-47 as a co-pilot was uh, was a little bit daunting but uh, I learned quickly uh, I went to Orlando to McCoy Air Force Base and got on a crew there uh, a really good crew and um, it, it, it was a good job and uh, and I, I got a lot out of it so when we look back at uh, you know sort of what was what was going on at that point in the the Cold War, and you mentioned the nuclear deterrence, uh, you know you see these these diagrams of uh, of a maneuver that uh, that uh, pilots were at least ostensibly trained or prepared to use, sort of in lobbing. Uh, the the nuclear bomb, you know, sort of descending at the target and then pulling this giant bomber up and over into basically like into a half Cuban eight. Is that something that you ever actually trained and practiced? Was that a viable thing or was that just a crazy sketch on paper? Well, they did uh, extensive testing with that. There was a wing in each Air Force, 8th and 15th and 2nd, that uh, – experience that they had some problems with it they learned for one thing that the v-47 wings were uh, not substantial enough to uh, to maintain that to do that uh, it was a high g maneuver and uh it was a pretty uh, spectacular maneuver i did not get involved with that uh we were strictly a flyover wow you know when you watch and i reference this probably a lot but when you watch movies like strategic air command you know there's a lot of a lot of security and a lot of uh, uh, time sitting alert. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what was life like in the SAC uh, at that time, the Strategic Air Command?
can imagine. Uh, so when you're when you're serving alert like that, um, you know, did you did you ever get a call to scramble that you you thought might have been uh, the real thing? Hell, not at that time. Um, things things were tight with the, with the Cold War, but uh, we did those things frequently, and it became kind of commonplace, except for the fact that you were dealing with nuclear weapons, and that never became commonplace. I was always in all of those things. We had a strict two-man policy around the weapons. Uh, there was no joking around with those things. It was uh, it was a serious business. You know, it, was there anything? Um, you know, one of the one of the stories you mentioned to me that I wanted to make sure we told was a story you told about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and how that involved Milwaukee. That was a really interesting story. I'd never uh, never heard about. Yeah. Well, the part that involved uh, Milwaukee was there was a plan that in addition to the ground alert aircraft that there was a serious, serious threat to our security to divert uh, a number of B-47s into civilian airports. And the other one that I neglected to mention to you was uh, Duluth. And so uh, the day after President Kennedy had announced the Cuban Missile Crisis and the plan and so forth. Uh, our airplanes were flushed out and actually went into civilian airports. There was two that, uh, and for our particular wing, to Milwaukee and to uh, Duluth. Uh, I think these uh, units typically had uh, guard units there so that uh, our fuel was available and, and some servicing. But um, at that particular time, uh, when that was called, uh, we, we grounded all the airplanes Flushed the airplanes out. Some airplanes stayed. I was in Lincoln Air Force Base uh, in Nebraska at that time. And uh, in my particular case, I was uh, uh, sent over to Greenham Common, England, which was our reflex base at that time. It was a tough time. Um, I had to leave my wife and my two young sons, and uh, they were filling the bathtubs and the washing machines with water. It was was certainly a, a very, very unsettling time as far as the national situation. And the idea of moving these airplanes uh, to these civilian uh, civilian airports, we're just dispersing the fleet at, at that point. Is that right? And exactly. just making sure that our, our retaliatory strike capability is spread out? Exactly. Wow. Wow. I never heard that before. I, I hadn't either. Uh, that was that was news to me. That's incredible. And you, you mentioned one uh, specific uh, – uh, award a gentleman got because of, of fuel. Are you able to tell that story uh, with with uh, getting available fuel to get his airplane? Oh. Uh, oh, it, was, uh, it just shows you that Americans uh, stand up when they needed to, to be. But I had one of those bases. Um, the guys couldn't get the fuel. They needed, they did, there was no contract there to load JP-4 into these airplanes. They flew in, all armed, nuclear armed. The crews were armed. They had the go-code envelopes with them. Um, this guy couldn't get fuel, so uh, he paid for it with his own Texaco credit card to fill up a, <laughs> fill up a B-47. Oh, my and, uh, American ingenuity just, uh, never never fails. You, you, you want to be an accountant at Texaco looking <laughs> yeah. at this and, and say, wait a minute, how many thousands of gallons did he buy? This guy used a lot of fuel in his piper. Yeah, <laughs> you know. exactly. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Well, So how long were you in the B-47 overall? I was in the B-47 for two years in Orlando, and then I became an aircraft commander, and I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska for another two years there. And I got about 1,500 hours in the airplane or so. 
Now, uh, I could talk B-47 all day because I, I love aircraft of that era, yeah. but the reason you're here is because you're going to be talking tonight at our speaker series, uh, and um, you eventually transitioned into the B-58 Hustler. Uh, it's one of the most iconic bombers, I think, of the, of the Strategic Air Command. Uh, how did that come about? How did you find out about the plane, and how did you transfer into it? Well, the airplane was was on the news. Uh, they were setting records, and uh, I knew two or three different people who had gone into that program, and I'd gotten the feedback from them about how much they liked it and what a thrill it was and what a challenge it was. And uh, the requirements were, were fairly extensive. Uh, you had to be commander for a year or so of a, at least a senior crew in SAC or above, uh, and have so much, I think maybe 500 hours of flying time as an aircraft commander. And about two weeks before I got that time, I found out which sergeant over at uh, SAC headquarters handled the uh, orders to get you into the B-58. And I was talking to that guy like a brother. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, he came through for me. When As soon as I got my minimum time, as I said, I got there as quickly as I could <laughs> to, uh, to the 58. So what's the uh, what's the transition training like? You're going from a you know a traditional six engine B forty seven heavier airplane, and then you're moving into this Delta. I always thought of the B fifty eight as a giant fighter. You know, it's an F one hundred two or F one hundred six writ large. But uh, how, how'd that go? Interesting that you should ask. But uh, they had a lead in program that involved the F one hundred two. So I went down to Perrin Air Base uh, for about six weeks. I uh, did a little bit of uh, instrument refreshment in the T-33, and then I actually checked out in the 102, which gave us the uh, delta wing characteristics, which are re- really necessary for flying a B-58. There was also, um, as we mentioned earlier, some other requirements uh, with the capsule. Before I ever went there, I had to be man-sized, as they called it, to see if, if I fit into the escape capsule. And uh, we did that and uh, managed to get through that okay. And then went into B-58 training at Carswell. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, the escape capsule? It's not, uh, you don't have traditional individual ejection seats like you do in so many other aircraft. Uh, how did that capsule thing work? Each capsule, uh, there were three, one for each individual in the uh, airplane. They, you would... Uh, get into a situation where you need it, and then you could raise the handles, and you could actually encapsulate. This thing pulls your legs and your knees back into the seat, and the harness straps pulled you back into the seat, and the door closed and actually pressurized this capsule. That took, like, less than a second to wow. do that. Now your ejection seat is armed. You're not necessarily ejecting, but the triggers are armed so that if you have to bail out of the airplane, you can do that. And... Explosive decompression situations, the capsule would um, would um, go to about 37, would pressurize to about 37,500 feet and protect you from the altitude and those, those elements. If you had to eject, you pull the handles, uh, it would protect you at uh, any speed and any altitude that the B-58 would operate. Wow, because, uh, you know, obviously... A, a, a traditional ejection seat at supersonic speeds, you know, and we, there's there's stories, there's fighter pilots out there who've ejected at somewhere slightly more than Mach one, but but uh, you know, the B fifty eight capable of quite a bit more than that. That's 
the bonus was that we were able to fly in our shirt sleeves. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, the Air Force required, uh, you know, pressurized pressure suits above 50,000 feet, but we would go to 50 and Mach 2 in our summer flying suits, and that was a real bonus. Wow. That's that's incredible. Uh, not to belabor it, but just thinking again about, you know, about this capsule, you say you could you could be encapsulated, and then, but you've, you're not committed to the ejection at that point. Can you then, two questions, can you then open it up? And then, I'm, I'm just trying to picture how small this capsule is. Are you, Is it just enveloping you and you no longer can have access to flight controls, or is it your whole little cockpit section? Just it's it's pretty personal, but they they do have the stick in there with you. You can still fly the airplane okay. from the front seat, but you can't handle the throttles. So you're stuck with whatever throttle setting. We wow. actually lost an airplane because the pilot encapsulated due to a thunderstorm hail situation that broke the windows out of the front of the airplane. He encapsulated, could not get the door open, and they eventually bailed out. Wow. Wow. But but typically yes we we would open it back up and uh, and operate normally. You never uh, never encountered any angry bears or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> so for those who don't know, they tested bears. They put bears in the capsules when they tested them. I'd never heard that. Yeah, and well, you, they, they tried to get a guy to go, but uh, they could only talk the bear into it. And, uh, <laughs> no, they gosh. used uh, they used dummies for a while, uh, and then you know, through several ejections. And they wanted to get, uh, you know, a live sample in there. So they put a bear that uh, simulated the weight, et cetera, of a, of a human being. And I, and I hope they put him to sleep or something like that. But they ejected him out of a, a B-58 at uh, Edwards. Um, and, uh, and the bear was okay. Yeah, he was, he's in good spirits in the video. Wow. Uh, I was thinking, like, boy, I'd hate to be the guy to have to open up this can full of angry bear. <laughs> And uh, and he oh, was kidding. he was yeah he was pretty yeah. happy bear when they got him out of there. I'm sure. Well, I guess he's pretty happy to get out of that thing. So he could have been tranquilized. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll see if we can get the bear on our next episode yeah, absolutely, too. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll go straight yeah. to the source. Well, then the next the next act was to get a, a human being, and they, there was a warrant officer that uh, used the ejection seat out of the second station at twenty thousand feet at I believe five hundred and twenty five miles an hour. My gosh. Yeah, and it was successful. The the thing floats. It had survival equipment for Arctic, uh Hawaii it didn't make any difference. Uh it it was it was quite a quite of an innovation. Really wow. impressive. Yeah, that is that is incredible. Um can you tell us about your first time flying a B fifty eight? What did you think of it? I was so thrilled that I I put out all of the thoughts that uh, I was going that fast and, and uh, the airplane just handled beautifully. Put yourself in a position of, of stepping, say, from an unstable canoe onto a 40-foot yacht. And that was the difference. The, the airplane had artificial feel in it, but it was so well done, so well engineered that you knew that you had a lot of airplane under it. You had adequate power, more than enough power, and uh, it just was was a, a jewel to fly, a pleasure. We, we talked earlier. You know, you get it out on the runway, and you're sitting out on their numbers, and you you you, know, you put the coals to it. The, do you feel that acceleration? Is that that much of a kick in the airplane? Yeah, it doesn't kick too hard, but the lateral uh, accelerations are, are continuous all the way down the takeoff roll. Airplane uh, at nominal training weights would. Uh, you would not rotate until you're up around 175 knots. Well, it didn't take long. You could make that uh, six, seven thousand feet. Wow! 
and which was a great change from the B-47, which uh, <laughs> used all the runway that you had no matter where you were. So. And then maybe needed JATOs on top of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For uh, emergency war orders, we, we were loaded with external Loaded JATO, 30, 30 bottles. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Talk about an extra kick. Wow. That's awesome. The um, uh, the one question I have to ask you, and you mentioned it, but I I, I got to get you to tell the story. It was you said you uh, uh, you guys were were was it buzzing one of the towers at uh, at Edwards? Can you tell me about that? I just that was a um, it was a typical Armed Forces Day um, type thing. It was a static display. I was on static display, not not flying. That's the first time I'd seen the F-111 airborne. This would have been about 65, probably 1966. And this was at SAC headquarters in Omaha, where perhaps God Almighty lived in there. I wasn't sure. <laughs> but we were afraid. <laughs> Anyhow, I was— By God Almighty, do you mean Curtis LeMay? <laughs> well, he had, he had left there, but he left his, uh, his, his minions behind him. They were all still there. Forgive me. I parked next to the Vulcan bomber with the RAF guys. Oh. And we were leaving Sunday afternoon. We were going home. The show was over, although there were still a lot of people around. But the air show was done. And these guys said, if you don't give us a really high-speed pass, uh, you're not much of a man. So that, that's all I needed. And um, I called the tower, and I said, I'm departing, and I want to make a pass. So I, I made a really fast pass by there and uh, pulled it up. And lit the afterburners and rolled out at 18,000 feet, just about straight up, you know. And um, that's okay. But I was a little nervous about the fact that it was at SAC headquarters. They don't like you rolling their airplanes, their big airplanes. I go home back to Little Rock and land, and my wing commander is standing at the bottom of the stairs. And I said, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dead man. <laughs> But but it, it it turned out well. He said, "How'd the show go?" And I said, "Fine, sir." And he says, "See you." So <laughs> so we pulled it off. It, uh, we made a high speed pass over Sackett Quarter. Wow, <laughs> wow. So um, you know the B fifty eight developed as you mentioned Mach two and fifty thousand feet meant for high altitude, but um, that was right about the time we were transitioning to low altitude uh, bombing and, and low altitude ingress and egress. Um, at what point, when you came into the program, so where was the strategic bombing thing? Were the, was the SAM technology enough at that point that you were focusing on low altitude, or were you there for sort of some of that transition? No, we were focusing on low level at that point. Those SA-2 okay. missiles were uh, were good. And uh, one of the reasons that they had stuff like that was because of the threat of the B-58 and the Hustler. Um, they helped, so they spent billions of dollars to defend against that. But they had to defend against the high-altitude 50,000-foot Mark II delivery, but the odds were in our favor going low. And as it turned out, the B-58 was one of the best airplanes at low level because of its, its structure and its speed. Uh, and if you fly an app of the earth over there, it really gives you a better chance to get to a target. So what was the the, the fastest you'd ever flown in the, in the Hustler? Uh, Mark II. Uh, Around 22 miles a minute, uh, 1,200 knots an hour. There is no, <laughs> there is no way to, to 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 describe that speed in any unit that doesn't just sound sort of more jaw dropping. Like 22 miles a minute. Yeah. And uh, and and boy, if there is anybody out there listening who who 
uh, by chance isn't familiar with what a B-58 looks like or hasn't seen some video of it, well, you do yourself a favor and get out and, and take a look. You know, there are iconic airplanes, there are beautiful airplanes, there are important airplanes, significant airplanes. Um, there's a handful of airplanes that are just, I think, undeniably, in, inarguably, and objectively cool. And and to, to me, the uh, B-58 has always been been tops on that on that list and that whole uh, fascinating to me that not only did the doctrine change from sort of high altitude or the, the uh, strategy change from high altitude to low altitude tactics but uh, as you said the airplane turned out to be great at it and that really wasn't exactly what it was designed for was it that's right but the, the stability of the airplane the airplane uh, was damped in all three axes flight controls you know pitch roll and, and yaw and it smoothed out those uh, bumps. We used to fly the same night IFR low-level routes that all SAC airplanes do, 52s and 47s. 52s were having to climb out of these routes because of turbulence, and we didn't even feel it. Wow. And it really was remarkable, the, the smoothness of that ride. I'll just mention, you're talking about smoothness, uh, during air refueling, uh, the 58 was just rock solid. The only problem you ever had was if there was turbulence at 30,000 feet while you were refueling. Uh, the tanker, which was a you know a big bent wing airplane, tended to yaw a little bit and roll a little bit with the turbulence. The, the Hustler did not. It set their stock still. Wow. So you had to you know to navigate that. To, it wasn't a problem, but it was something that, that you'd noticed uh, in, in terms of stability between the two airplanes. That's really interesting. I, you know, I never would have thought of that. But but if you've got a KC-135 refueling, a, maybe a B-52, for example, swept wing airplanes and, and things like that, they're they're probably re reacting to the turbulence in much the same way. So they're, are, are they unstable together and it's easier to stay in sync, whereas the B-58 is just motionless and the 135 is bouncing around? Pretty much so. That, wow. that would, that's descriptive of, of what it was like. and. Uh, that's really cool. I never even thought <laughs> yeah, about that. I never thought about that either. This is one of the interviews where I'm just sitting there stumped a couple times like, oh, my <laughs> God, that's super cool. I never thought about that. So, um, oh, that's awesome. So we talked about takeoff and landing and life or takeoff cruise and life run. But can you tell me a little bit about landing the B-58? That, that had to be an interesting uh, uh, animal to land. It is. This, and this is probably the big difference in operating the airplane uh, in terms of pilots. Um if you were nervous about flying final at 190, 200 knots, then, then you were nervous, you know. Um, the airplane was easy to land. It just had some technique involved in it. Our glide slopes at home, our ILS and our radar glide slopes, were actually decreased uh, another three-tenths or so to get because of the flat approach that we used. Um, Airspeed-wise, we flew 250 on downwind, Minimum, uh, 220 minimum on base plus a fuel correction if it was necessary and, and then rolled out on your final airspeed which would be around 100 and anywhere from 185 195 knots on final and you touched down about 170 to 175 knots and deployed the chute so you had to think ahead of the airplane uh, crosswinds could be a problem uh, breaking out of weather and getting lined up with a runway could be a problem uh, but as I said, it, it's a pilot as a pilot, right? And you just, <laughs> it, at those speeds, you think out a little bit ahead of it, and uh, you don't let it bother you. Oh. 
And so you mentioned doing a, a relatively flat approach, and we, you know, when I think of a larger delta wing airplane, the most recent example might come to come to mind would be something like Concorde. So it's, delta wing is very high, what looks like a very high angle of attack, but they of course have the the nose that droops out of the way. You're in a flatter approach, but still delta wing. So I'm assuming still reasonably good angle of attack. What's the forward visibility like? When you're, when out you're of the front seat, directly ahead of you, you've got that nose cone sticking out. Right. It's not a problem. You, you've got enough lateral visibility to see. If you're an instructor pilot, you're sitting in the back, it's a whole other ballgame. <laughs> landing the back seat, uh, landing the B-58 from the back seat is um, it's fun. That's all I could say about it. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> you have your life flash before your eyes every occasion. Wow. And you hope you trust the guy in the front seat, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Well, and that's what's interesting. There actually is the, the TB-58. So there were trainer variants of the 58. Um, yeah, that would be a really weird sensation to try fly it from back there. Well, if you get a, a VIP or, you know, a... Uh, some of the, the higher-ups that come down and fly the airplane, most of them are very, very good. Occasionally, you get a guy that needs some, you know, some close monitoring, but uh, we got through all of it. Uh, it was, yeah. and, uh, and Jimmy Stewart flew the B-58, didn't he? He did fly the B-58. Yes, he did. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I, I was always curious about that, and he's, uh, you know, there's a the promotional video that uh, that he did around the b-58s easily found on youtube it's pretty spectacular to watch and it, it starts with this litany of all the records the type is one of the you know Harmon trophy and the collier trophy and everything else all these insane speed records but um i in in looking at at stewart in particular and knowing you know his service and that he he, he seemed to be such an advocate for the air force the picture that i have is uh, when when he would come to do something like this, come and fly the B fifty eight, that he'd be well received and well regarded. But I can imagine some people might say, "Oh, it's just some Hollywood type coming in here, you know, wanting to show off." Do you have any sense for what the B fifty eight crews thought about uh, some like about Stewart in particular when he'd come to fly the airplane? Yeah, Stewart had nothing but our admiration. Uh, Wonderful. He had been a B seventeen pilot, I believe, in World War Two. And uh, and had flown extensively and was promoted to general because of his activity, I think, with the Air Reserve and stuff. But he had always been responsive and friendly to the military side of the of the game. And uh, nothing but total respect for Jimmy Stewart. That's that's a relief. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I'm to hear. Nervous yeah. asking the question because because there's the there's the the image and yeah. you know it's. Uh, my gut has always told me that the image is the reality, but yeah. you never know. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Uh, so when you're rolling out on the 58 and you punch that parachute out, do you, do you, can you feel that at all? Because uh, it had it had the drag chute, right? Yes. Yes, that's a big drag chute. Um, you land and, and lower the nose slightly and deploy that chute, and you can definitely feel the tug. And uh, then you pull the nose back up for aerodynamic deceleration, lower the nose at 100 knots, and— uh, put the brakes on and you almost yeah. always use the chute right <laughs> there were a couple of times i didn't use it when i was uh, very very light and uh was stopping in for not too long and uh, i didn't want to repack that chute so <laughs> that's something I, that that i've uh, always been curious about too is you know the, the drag chute comes out and it's very cool and we see the airplane stops stop but but who who's going out to the the runway to re- retrieve it? Because once once you've stopped, you're releasing it, right? Because you're not taxiing and dragging it along. Exactly, and I, you know that's a great question because uh, 
our ground crews never got enough uh, thanks or recognition for what they did. But uh, those guys were out there. I don't care if it was snowing or raining or whatever. When you pull off the runway, you actually turned about 90 degrees uh, to the runway and just popped the chute and put it on the, the uh, asphalt behind the airplane. Okay. And some guys got to go pick it up, you know, and take it in and dry it out and repack it. And those guys did a wonderful job. Wow. And it, so you mentioned, you know, not using it uh, once in a while because you were light or something like that. If, if you're, uh, when these airplanes say are deployed to, as you were talking earlier, the civilian airports, things like that, um, you had to have ground crew available there, right? I mean, if, if, if especially if, if you use the chute on landing and you've got to go again, um, that was just a requirement to have ground crew there or, or was the, the flight crew able to do it in a pinch or? I don't know if I'd want to use a parachute that I packed. <laughs> <laughs> we were not trained to pack parachutes. We were trained to download the guns, the Gatling gun in the tail. Oh, wow. Yeah, we, we had to do that training because you're, you're, you're talking ordnance. If you went at a strange airport, you need to neutralize those guns. And uh, But the parachute, uh, we really never were trained to do that. But uh, that's not an uncommon thing anymore. If there's National Guard or uh, or any military around they generally have had experience with the airplanes with the drag shoots interesting high performance airplane yeah so we, you know we we touched on a lot of different aspects and we and we briefly touched on the weapon but how stressful was that knowing what you were carrying i mean on board the aircraft on the on the 58 that had to be pretty intense right as far as carrying the uh, a, a nuclear a, weapon a nuclear weapon yeah. well Fortunately, we did not have to do that too much in uh, um, in the B-58. I carried a couple, moving them, transporting them to a different location uh, from one country to another in the B-47. But that never came up in the B-58. But, um, you know, nuclear weapons are, are awesome. And uh, anybody that's not nervous uh, or at least has an awareness around those things doesn't need to be around them. Uh, it, it was never a normal situation when I was around. I don't care if I was pre-flighting an alert airplane or whatever I was doing. A nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon, and uh, uh, it bears a lot of watching and a lot of attention. So when you were uh, sitting alert like that, and did did you know, uh, say, what your target would would be at that point, or is it sort of sealed orders until we fire up the airplane and scramble and go? No, sir. I knew that target by rote and i had to brief it to the wing commander once or twice a year just to show that you, you knew it and everything not, else. not only the target but the environs and uh what kind of country it was in and the terrain and uh everything about that particular target we we knew exactly where those targets were yeah, i can imagine especially with the low level uh, approach and things that mm -hmm. you would you would absolutely have to uh did you ever find yourself visiting any of those targets uh in peacetime, after the fact. Close. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <laughs> That's all I'll say about yeah. that. All yeah. right, fair enough. That's our sign. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so after the B-58, what was the next uh, airframe you went into? I got out of the 58 and went to the, the uh, FB-111 Cadre. I suppose the FB-111 was supposed to uh, replace the... B-58 as a medium sack bomber, and uh, we formed the cadre back at Fort Worth again, and uh, I went into there as an instructor, and uh, 
did that for three years, two years. And what were your what were your general overall thoughts on the one eleven? One eleven was was fantastic as a probably the best low level bomber that was ever built, and I think that proved out in Vietnam uh, once they got their initial problems taken care of. Which, but but the um, bombing and navigation system was was just outstanding. You could drive nails with it, and I as an instructor, I had to learn the right seat, which was the radar and the computers and all that. And even I could drop bombs with that thing and and, and hit the target. And, uh, and literally, it was. And you had the terrain following aspect uh, of that airplane. It it has to be the probably the best penetrator uh, of a target area. And you may not know this, but they uh, used the same terrain following system for the B one. Really interesting. Yes, they had to change the the uh, formulas for, you know, the climbing and, and the speeds and, and, and so forth. But uh, it was the same system, and it was an outstanding system. Wow. You could fly 200 feet at 600 knots, and uh, day, day or night, whether or not, and it was uh, a penetrator. Good Lord. That's just fantastic. Um, with either airframe, the the FB-111 or then into the B-1, uh, was there anything was there anything challenging or unusual uh, moving into a swing wing configuration? Yes, um, you know, it, it primarily involved uh, centered of gravity control. That was critical when you can move the wings around. And uh, you needed to be, you know, in, in G with those things. It, uh, it was not difficult to learn. Uh, the wings were simple, single handle. Uh, and uh, they let you go really fast. <laughs> And then when you when you got into the the B one program when it started up you you mentioned that you 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 chased a B one with an F one eleven is that right mm-hmm. that was our safety chase uh, for the B one that was the F one eleven program I did that frequently wow that had to be something else that had to be like I think Sam mentioned it when he was in here that had to be one heck of a noise if you were on the ground <laughs> watching a B one getting chased by an F one eleven that's uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's tell us uh, just a little bit about what part of the program you were involved with with the B one. Well, it would have been the uh, initial test, which was conducted with the flight test center at, at Edwards, and I was the director for uh, the operational end of the test. But we flew with and had operational crews that flew the B one, just like the the test center people did, the developmental people, and the contractor was there also, and uh, they were doing performance testing and. I chased one performance test, which was the maximum Q, maximum aerodynamic pressure test at sea level, which was really conducted over the Pacific Missile Range at 500 feet. But I chased that with the B-1, and they tried to excite to excite the flutter modes and stuff like that. They're trying to get the airplane to break up, you know, which is <laughs> sure. And, and uh, thank goodness it didn't do that. But uh, it, it was really. It was scary watching that thing. Those guys earned their money, and uh, wow, um, they they did those tests, and and we were part of that thing. And uh, by the time the production decision came around, which we briefed and which did go through, until uh, President Carter canceled the program. Uh, but the B one is uh, is quite a weapon system, and and, and very good. I appreciate you pointing that out because I was trying to sort of mentally place this along the timeline. So, so this your time on the B one was was pre cancellation at that point, and then how how long did it take before it was uh, it was uncanceled? I, I remember that in the news as a kid. President but, Reagan brought it back, and we'd right. have to uh, 
what, uh, 80s? Yeah, so early, or very yeah. early 80s, but there was, yeah. uh, there was a pretty big, uh, pretty big gap there. But Interestingly enough, the B-1 had an escape cabin module on it. The entire uh, four-man crew could escape with the B-1. I know it was used one time, but um, uh, when the SAC, the, the later version came out after it was, uh, the production was cranked back up again, they actually put seats in it. Oh, really? Individual ejection seats? Yeah, they had trouble with stability with, uh, with a big thing like that. And, you know, you take the conditions you could get into, low altitude, inverted, things like that. It turned out that um, chances were probably better with a seat. The expenses were, were certainly different. And they, they slowed the airplane down some. I mean, they, they took it from a Mach 2 airplane down to, I'm not sure, 1.4 or something like wow. that. But, but we, originally it was intended to be Mach 2. It, it was, and we did flew it. We flew it at Mach 2. And you flew yeah. it at that yeah. fast. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that something? That's incredible. As you're talking, I keep thinking of the the passes and stuff at the B-1 here at AirVenture, the yeah. afterburners on and everything that we get at uh, – that's pretty cool. Well, I can't thank you enough uh, for your time, for being here. Uh, uh, again, uh, Colonel Hooker is here for the speaker series that we do every month, and uh, except for a couple months like July. Uh, <laughs> but uh, again, just can't say thank you enough um, for your time and, and for willingness to, to fly all this way out here to be part of this. Um, how do you have any final questions or thoughts or um, I just want to echo what Chris said uh, how how uh, grateful we are for you to, to be so generous with your time and your stories and uh, and of course uh, we're, we're thankful for your service uh, you were there uh, out there on the line uh, shortly before I was born and when I was a little kid and um, and we owe you a debt and and we we, we take that very seriously Um but uh, anyway, uh, as Chris said, thank you very much again. Uh, and as he mentioned, as we're recording this, uh, the, on the date we're recording it tonight, uh, you'll be speaking at our museum. Um, those uh, those sessions are usually recorded and made available uh, later. So by the time uh, you're listening to this episode, uh, you may be able to find that presentation online, and if not, uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, so with that, uh, Colonel Hooker, thank you so much again for your time, for uh, your patience in answering a litany of questions and putting up with a couple of fanboys over here who are so excited about this thanks as always to everyone out there for listening thanks to everybody who takes the time to leave us a, a positive uh, review on itunes or uh, wherever you get uh, your podcasts uh, those reviews and the star ratings uh, mean the world and they're the they're the way we justify keeping things going so keep those coming uh, send us your comments at feedback at ea.org you can also leave comments directly on each episode's landing page at inspired.ea.org which is our hangar flying blog every episode has a spot there but until uh, next time thanks everybody as always for listening please keep it up and we'll catch up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot